Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to John chapter 2. John 2, we began three weeks ago going through the Gospel of John. We come to chapter 2 today. What has been the greatest celebration in your life? Was it a graduation party? Maybe if you're younger. Um, Was it an epic birthday party that you had one year? Was it your wedding day? Was it the day your first child was born? Or your second child or your third child or um, all of your children? Was it maybe a retirement party that you looked forward to for 35 years and finally got it? Think back to that celebration. Think back to the joy that you had that day. You see, Jesus chooses a similar celebration like that um, to perform his first miracle in the Gospel of John. The first miraculous thing he's going to do in the Gospel of John happens at a celebration like that. He did this for a purpose. So John chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom, said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. If you remember, as we've looked at John the first three weeks, um, John is calling back to Genesis chapter 1. He did that through saying that in the beginning Jesus existed, the same as in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There's a huge emphasis on light during this time um, and and various things like that. And you'll notice as we work through John 1 and 2, it keeps having these progression of days. 
So chapter 1, verse 19 is, is a story of a day. And then the, chapter 1, verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming. 35, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. The third day since what? Well, since the last day that was mentioned. What happened with Nathaniel in 43 through 51? Um, it's this day progression. How many days is that? We'll count them up. One, two, three, four, four plus three. Seven. Seven days. Remember, this is calling back to creation and showing how Jesus is the one that does creative acts. He's doing something creative here, something a creation sort of way. He's going to do a new creative act as he did in Genesis chapter 1 in the book of John. And that begins here on chapter 2 in the wedding in Cana. You'll notice it says that he was in Cana in Galilee. That, that might seem like an insignificant detail until you see chapter 4, verse 54, where it says, this was now the second sign that Jesus did. Wait, that's not the right verse. I'm sorry. Um, 46, not 54. So he came again to Cana in Galilee. So John is bookending two stories here, both in Cana and Galilee, everything in between it is, is meant to flow together. So we're going to look at those over the next few weeks, see how that happens. Um, so Jesus is at a wedding. He's at a wedding. It takes place at a Jewish wedding. They're quite different from American weddings. Very different. An American wedding, you're there 30 minutes for a ceremony, and then you have two to four hours of a reception, then you're done. The couple drives away, you go clean up all the, all the stuff, you help the family, and you go home. In a Jewish wedding, things go on for a whole week. It's a whole week celebration. Um, for an entire week, people are celebrating and partying over this new couple. And the couple's there, you know, they don't go off on a honeymoon right away. They, they stay for a week and, and celebrate with everybody. They're dancing, they're feasting, they're fellowshipping all week long to celebrate this new couple. Jesus and his disciples are invited to this wedding. Um, seems kind of like because of his mother, his mother is likely connected to the people at the wedding, and they invite Jesus and his disciples because they're connected to his mother. You know, when you get married, you send out invitations to, you know, all of the people that you want there, and then all the people connected to those people um, so that you don't offend anybody. Um, so Jesus and his disciples were invited, and they're here. And we come to verse 3, they ran out of wine. Wine is part of this celebration. In Jewish culture, wine was a symbol of celebration and joy. Yeah, just a few scriptures to, to remember that. Psalm 104, 14 and 15. You cause grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Ecclesiastes 9, 7. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Wine is a symbol of joy and celebration for these people. Now the question always comes up when you come to this passage is, was the wine alcoholic was it fermented that's that's often a debate around this passage 
Um, a lot of times people will turn to this passage to say it's okay for Christians to drink alcohol because Jesus turned water into wine and apparently Jesus drank the wine. Well, there's three types of wine in the days of Jesus. There's fermented wine. Um, however, it is, um, it is two-thirds water, one-third wine. So there's certainly alcohol in it, but, but not enough to get you plastered unless you just gorge yourself on it. Um, you, you, you fermented it to keep it fresh because there's no, um, the, there's no Whirlpool refrigerators in that day. You've got to keep it fresh somehow. There's new wine. It's similar to apple cider. It's not fermented. It's brand new. The, the fermentation hasn't happened yet. You bring it straight to the celebration. You drink it. And then there's boiled wine. It's wine that has been boiled, making the fermentation process stop. It's, it was new wine. It started to get old, so they boiled it to keep it from happening. We don't know which one was being drunk here, so maybe it was fermented, maybe it wasn't. But then the question always comes, is it a sin to drink wine? This isn't dealing with beer or vodka or whatever, so we're not even going to get into that, but just wine. Is it a sin to drink wine? Well, technically, no. Just to drink it, no. Um, there's passages in the Bible that say that it's okay. Um, Paul tells Timothy, drink some wine for your stomach, because he's apparently got some stomach issues. But just a few thoughts regarding that. Um, it's a sin to get drunk. That's all throughout Scripture. And my question is, when are you considered drunk? Um, I, I was at a, a time in college when, when a speaker on campus was speaking about a Christian perspective on alcohol and presenting this similar thing. And you could text in questions, and I texted in, when are you considered drunk? How many drinks is it before you're drunk? And I think the speaker thought I was asking that to know how far I could get. But actually, I was wondering, okay, how many, how many drinks is it before a Christian is considered drunk? Is it just when they're starting to get tipsy? Or is it when they're throwing up in the bathroom at the end of the night? Like, which one is it? As Christians, we're, we're called to live holy lives. We're called to live above reproach. We're called to live such a life that's seeking to be like, to be holy, that nobody can look at us and say, Here's some character flaws with that person. So I just say for myself, I don't drink. I've never had a drop in my life. I don't want a drop. Uh, I'd, I'd rather people not have to question my character because I drink. While I have freedom in Christ to drink a glass of wine, I don't want to cause somebody, you know, maybe had an abusive alcoholic father to lose respect for me because I'm a pastor and they see me drinking and it makes them think of their father. There are things in life we are technically allowed to do biblically, but the question is, is it going to harm those Christians around us? Because the Bible says it's better for you to give up your rights than to harm your brother. It, it, it says that um, not all, thing, all things are lawful for you, not all things are beneficial for you. So this wedding has a week long of activities. You had to prepare a lot of stuff for something like this. I don't know if you've ever cooked dinner. You're cooking 21 meals for seven weeks or, or for seven days. I don't know if they, I don't know if that's exactly right, but, but you're preparing food for people to feast all week, all week. So you've got to prepare enough food and enough drink for a week of celebration. Running out of wine in Jewish culture would be a serious social embarrassment. It'd be the equivalent to you going to Fresco Italiano in Tifton. That's the most nicest restaurant in Tifton I can think of off the top of my head. You go to Fresco Italiano, you get your spaghetti or whatever it is you order, 
and you look in it and there's this you're like that's not a noodle that's a long hair and it's like this long it'd be the equivalent of that running out of wine at a wedding and that's that's what's happened so Mary comes to Jesus and she says they're out of wine She's probably helping serve at the wedding, and so she's recognized this, and so she comes to Jesus, knowing that he's, you know, got supernatural powers. Hey, we need to do something about this. Um, It seems maybe she expected him to do something, but he responds with, woman, what does this have to do with me? When he says woman there, it's not rude. It may sound rude from our perspective, but that's just how they address people back then, man or woman. Um, But he says... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It hasn't come yet. That's verse 4. This isn't my wedding, is what Jesus is saying. Why are you coming to me about this? I'm not the groom in in this wedding. Jesus is a single person at a wedding, and if you've ever been a single person at a wedding, which I assume you have, because I assume you went to one before you got married, um... What do single people tend to do at weddings? Well, they're usually very happy for the bride and the groom. They are. But they're usually thinking about their own wedding one day. They're usually thinking, man, I can't wait till this is my day and I'm marrying my bride or groom. It's probably no different for Jesus. Only the difference is Jesus isn't going to have an earthly wedding. He's not going to marry a woman here on earth. But he is going to have a wedding. He's, he's, he's not going to marry an earthly bride. One day a wedding is coming, but it will be different. One day his bride, the church, will be with him forever. He's going to be their God. They're going to be his people. They will spend forever together. That's the whole point of the end of the Bible. The bride and the groom are brought together, and they're together forever. Jesus is at this wedding thinking about that day. That day is coming. He calls it my hour. He says, my hour has not yet come. You're going to see that word a lot in the Gospel of John, my hour. It always refers to, Jesus is always talking about his crucifixion when he says my hour in John. It's always that that day when he's going to be lifted up for all to see on the cross. Something's going to happen in that hour that's similar to a wedding. Jesus goes to the cross and dies for the sins of the world, and in doing so, um, dies for his bride to rescue her. And in that moment, he offers the most epic marriage proposal ever. Look unto the lifted up Son of Man and be saved and be part of his bride. And all who do will be married to him in new creation, will be his. And as Jesus is at this wedding, he's thinking about that wedding to come, and it hasn't come yet. But Mary looks at the servants, verse 5, and she says, look, do whatever he tells you. I know my son, he's going to do something. Just, Just do whatever he tells you. And so Jesus takes the servants into a room. It says there's six stone water jars there. Um, Now we start to see what's going on. Six stone water jars. Jesus isn't just performing a miracle. He's doing something deeper. He's performing what what the Gospel of John calls a sign. There are stone water jars here. It says they're for Jewish purification. Understand, Jewish people wash in a bath for about everything. 
I mean, you wash to become clean. You wash before you go to church. You wash for this. You wash for that. If you touch a dead body, you, you have to wash. If you give birth, you have to wash. Like, there's so many reasons that you have to wash yourself by Jewish purification. And it never truly cleansed them. Never worked. Never fulfilled it. And that's the case of the Jewish religion of the day. It was dead. It was empty. Notice how many jars there are. Six. Understand numbers are important in the Bible. Sometimes in John, you're going to see numbers mentioned as an eyewitness testimony. So they're, they're all going to go fishing at some point. They're going to catch 153 fish. That's just eyewitness testimony. I was there. We counted the fish. In this case, there's six of them. Well, in the Bible, the number seven is the number for completeness, the number for victory, the number for God. Six is the number of man, the number of falling short, the number of failure. That's why the number of the beast in Revelation is 666. Failure, failure, failure. Falling short, falling short, falling short. The Jewish religion had fallen short. They had failed. They had not satisfied. These stone water jars cannot cleanse anybody because it's not by the blood of goats or by purification washing or anything like that that you can be healed. Jesus comes to change that. He comes to do something new. This is what dead religion is like, isn't it? This wasn't just the state of Jewish religion in the 20s and 30s AD. It's the state of American casual Christianity today. Let me say at the start, don't buy into the lie that no Christian in America is serious about their faith. Um, there, there's people who believe that. I could name um, dozens of churches right off the top of my head of just the ones I know that are faithfully serving the Lord, doing so many things for Him, alive and thriving. And that's just the ones I know. But it's true that a good amount of Christians in the U.S. are just casual Christians. A lot like the Jewish religion of that day. They're going through the motions. They're doing all the religious ritual because that's what they're supposed to do. Going to church just because that's what they're supposed to do. There's a lot of people in the U.S. that call themselves Christians, yet when, when churches were canceled for three months, it didn't even phase them. Their, their life didn't change too much because they really weren't that faithful to church beforehand. Casual Christians say they value the Bible, yet they never read it. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, There's enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation. Casual Christians only get serious about God when they need something. When they get sick, when they lose their job, they'll get really close to God. And then when they get a new job or get well, God isn't even part of their life anymore. Casual Christianity is a dead religion, and it will get you nowhere. It will get you nowhere. Jesus tells them, fill up these jars of water, draw some water out, and the real cleansing is going to happen. The real cleansing is going to happen. Draw it out, so that's what they do. Notice Jesus has them fill the water up, and he doesn't, he, he doesn't pray over the water. He, he doesn't stick his finger in and stir it around. He doesn't pour Kool-Aid packs in. He just wills it to change to wine. Just, just it happens because he wants it to. 
It doesn't change into wine in the pot. It looks more like they scoop out the water. They take it to the guy and it turns into wine while they're taking it there. Um, you, you can imagine how nervous everybody is as this is happening. I mean, the people who know about it, the servants are taking this glass to the master and they're very nervous because if this turns out to be water, they're in trouble. They, they take it up to him. He takes the, the, the master of the feast takes the cup. He, he, he drinks it. And they're thinking, oh no, what's he going to do? And he's just like, wow, this is incredible. I have never tasted wine like this in my life, ever. Nobody knew where it had come from. The servants knew. Because in reality, Jesus is the master of this feast. Not Not the master of the feast, Jesus is. He's the one who is in control of this feast. They say everyone serves the good wine first, and when everyone has become accustomed to the taste, they serve the cheap stuff. You did it opposite. You gave us the good stuff in their perspective, and now you've given us something incredible. Why is this so important? Well, John has made perfectly clear in this book that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one the Jewish people were expecting. He's the one who would save the world. He's the one who was coming to restore the world to what it's supposed to be. The age of the Messiah has begun here. It's begun. It's it's beginning with a celebration of joy. That's what the Messiah's ministry is going to be about. It's going to be about joy. That's where the Jewish religion and where casual Christianity falls short. There's no joy in it. There's two types of people. There's those people who sing hymns with joy on their face because they believe the words they're singing. And there's those who sing hymns bored out of their minds because that's what you're supposed to do in church. Wine is what is being used here to symbolize joy in those days. Joy has come. Everlasting joy. Eternal joy. Joy in the most excellent times of celebration and joy in the darkest night of the soul. It has come. Jesus has come to bring joy. His kingdom will be one of joy in its fullness, of celebration. This wedding feast is a celebration. People are dancing, they're having fun, they're rejoicing. I know you don't think they dance in the Bible, but they do. They would have been dancing here. They're they're having the time of their life. And this is where Jesus chooses to say, the time has come. The ministry has begun. The, The kingdom of God is at hand. You know, I don't think I don't think people would be so turned off by church if if church appeared more joyful. How many times have people gone to church and they've been told, all right, you go, dress in really stiff clothes that you don't want to wear um, and that you never wear the rest of the week? Walk in really somber? Don't you dare laugh while you're there? Don't you dare talk while you're there? And don't you dare move while you're there? I remember when I was in second grade, the first time I went to church, I was told, yeah, at church you got to be more quiet than you do at school. And I thought, oh, goodness. You know, don't show any teeth at church. If your baby starts crying, everyone will look at you and scowl because God forbid a baby do what babies do. If the slides on the music mess up, just, just glare at the person running them because obviously they're trying to upset the kingdom of heaven. Listen quietly. 
be told that if you don't attend this sort of dead gathering, God doesn't love you and leave. That's not the story of our church, but that's the story of a lot of churches. And that sounds dreadful. I don't want to be a part of that. Neither will children, neither will teenagers, neither will college students, and neither will adults. We gather on Sunday not to be in a concentration camp where we can never smile. We gather to joyfully celebrate that the Messiah has come and we are part of his kingdom. Do you have that joy? Or do you have dead religion? Verse 11 says, this is the first of the signs Jesus did. You're going to see seven signs over the course of the Gospel of John. This is his first one. Um, and, and John doesn't record a vast amount of miracles the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. He records seven, and he calls them signs. Why are they called signs? Well, what is a sign? It points to something. It points to something. As you drive down Mount Zion Church Road, you'll see a yellow sign on the side of the road that says, Church. And that's indicating you're about to pass a church. If you drive south on I-75, going a few exits down, you'll see a big red sign on the side of the road that says Chick-fil-A. That's indicating there's a Chick-fil-A there. I'm sorry it's Sunday and I reminded you of that. But as you drive north on 41, you pass a big wooden sign. I don't think it's very weed-eated right now, but, but a big wooden sign that says Chula, indicating you're entering Chula. You're in the, the town of Chula. Signs point to something. The seven signs Jesus performs in John are going to point to things. This one points to the fact that the age of the Messiah has begun. It says Jesus manifested his glory for, so that the disciples would believe in him. Jesus performs the signs that he might show who he is, that we might believe in him. He performs these signs and John writes them down so that all generations afterwards can believe. So I ask you today, do you believe in him? Do you have life in his name? Do you know, do you, do you know how you will know for certain that you have that life? Joy. Joy. You will have joy in God rather than religion that is just drudgery and a burden you have to fit into your already busy week? Do you have an all-satisfying joy in Christ? You can have that if you'll believe in him. If you do believe, but you don't have that joy, come talk to me. I want to help you learn how to find that joy, because that joy is all-satisfying, and you will not find it anywhere else in life. Pray with me. Father, give us joy, Lord. Give us joy. May joy pour down like the waterfalls on us. Lord, we long for the day when joy will be complete, where we will not fight back and forth with melancholy, with depression, with, with pain, but we will have joy everlasting. Until then, Lord, we have joy that isn't complete yet. 
Lord, would you fill us with that joy? Would you give us fullness of joy? You're going to say later in John that that's, that's why you give the Spirit to us, that we may have fullness of joy. Oh God, would you give that to us? Lord, would you make us joyful in who Christ is? Would you fix our eyes on him? Lord, may we have joy in him far beyond anything that we find joy in. Lord, may we know Christ and have more joy in him than we get from, from Lord, uh, football or um, our jobs or the beach or, um, or, or, or so many other things that we find our joy in. Lord, may Christ be an all-satisfying joy for us now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.